Thank you very much, ladies. That was beautiful. And the great words, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, O Lord, save us. And we've already read our passage for today. Uh, this story that uh, surrounds this day is recorded in four, all four of the Gospels. And we're looking at the, uh, the account that Luke gives us. Blessed is the king who is coming. That's what the people cry out. Actually, what they say is, <clears throat> blessed is the coming one. And uh, <clears throat> Luke is writing for us dumb Gentiles who might not understand what's involved there. So he adds the coming king, just so we're clear about what it is the, uh, the crowd was doing. So uh, let's think about this. Today is Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday because uh, in <clears throat> a couple of accounts, not in Luke, but in a couple of accounts, uh, as Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives, approaching the city of Jerusalem, uh, the people cut uh, branches off the trees, which are probably palm trees, so hence Palm Sunday, and they lay the palms in the, in the road <clears throat> for him to ride over. Uh, Luke tells us that they also uh, took their coats and so forth and laid them, put them on the donkey, and, and put them in the road. So Palm Sunday marks the beginning of what Christians call Holy Week or Passion Week, Passion referring to suffering. <clears throat> this is the last week of our Lord's life here upon earth, and uh, it will culminate at the end of the week in his death and his burial, and we will, we will be remembering that so on Good Friday this week. We'll have... Uh, uh, service here to consider that. But Palm Sunday is what uh, <clears throat> kicks it off. The week begins on a high note. Lots of excitement. The disciples are excited. The crowd, many of whom have heard about this man Jesus, they're excited for his coming. Uh, so there's a, there's a high note but it's going to end on a low note. It's going to end with the death and burial of Jesus. <clears throat> the disciples appear in the story as, as those who are big on enthusiasm but small in understanding. They, they don't really get what is happening. They think they do. Uh, <clears throat> what it has to do here <clears throat> is with an incomplete understanding of what it means to be the king. <laughs> Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they have a certain idea of what that looks like, but it's not Jesus' idea. But, uh, but our Lord is under no uh, uncertainty or misunderstanding about what is going to take place in this week. In fact, uh, 
we get some indications already in this entry into Jerusalem that uh, he not only knows what's going to happen, but he is orchestrating the events. So, here's Luke 18, just one chapter earlier. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. That's from our standpoint, historically, looking back. That that feels almost like overstatement, doesn't it? Their meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. They didn't understand any of this. And this is not the first time he's tried to tell them. Well, I guess part of what that shows is that if you have a wrong understanding of Scripture, especially fundamental passages, everything else is going to get twisted, right? So the disciples have a wrong understanding of what it means for the Messiah to come, the promised king. And with that wrong understanding, Jesus begins to talk about, you know, don't don't you guys understand what's written in the prophets? Namely, that the Son of Man is going to have to suffer. Don't, Don't you see that? And the answer is, no, they did not see it. But Jesus is not deceived. He understands precisely what will happen. And as I said, he's presented in these accounts as someone who isn't just going to experience some sort of uh, uh, tragedy overtaking him, but rather as one who actually guides and orchestrates what will happen. So we call it the triumphal entry. Uh, I want to think about it a little bit differently today. I want to think it more as the final invitation. Jesus offers an invitation to the people of Israel and particularly to the religious leaders in Israel. And uh, he invites them to a new understanding. And you know, he's still doing that today. He's still inviting people to encounter him afresh and to understand who he is and what he's up to. So I'm going to frame it around two questions that I think are posed by this entry and the events that take place. And and here's uh, here's the fundamental question. Is he the promised one? That is... Is he the promised king? Is he the one who will actually fulfill what the Old Testament prophets have said? Now, he's he's raised that question already in his ministry. Don't you 
Don't you people get what the prophets are saying? And many of them didn't. Most of them didn't. But is he the promised one? He, uh, he often raises that question indirectly. Or if he raises it directly, he raises it with a, a small group of people. Say his own disciples. That's what he does in Matthew chapter 16. He says, uh, who do people say that I am? Oh, some of them say, you're John the Baptist. Apparently John the Baptist raised from the dead. Or you're Elijah returned. You're the fulfillment of those concluding prophecies of the Old Testament that talk about Elijah showing up and turning the hearts of the people toward, uh, toward God. Or some of them say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. They're pretty clear that he's a prophet. Then he asks them the question, but who do you say that I am? And, and Peter's quick with the answer. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the coming king. You're the one we've been waiting for. And he endorses that. This has been revealed to you by my father. What does he do immediately after that? He starts talking about his suffering. And Peter says, no, no, no. no. You, you don't understand, Lord. Suffering's not in the cards for you because you're the Messiah. Same misunderstanding now that, that we see in Luke, right? But this is the question that comes up again and again that Jesus, even now, though he's not here, he continues to raise that with people. If, if you're around him at all, and by that I mean if you, if you read the stories about Jesus, about what, he, what he's done, if you just listen to his words, you know, the people who heard him in his day said, nobody has ever spoken the way this man speaks. Even in our secular society, you don't have to go very far to hear the words of Jesus repeated by people who, who have almost no knowledge of him. That's how powerful his words are. You know, judge not lest you be judged. That's uh, maybe the mantra of the 21st century. But, but those are the words of Jesus, and they're, they're powerful. You know? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so Jesus encounters people. And he encounters them in part through his spirit, who in the present time frame... After his death and resurrection, until he comes again, the Spirit is the, the personal representative of Jesus. And he works in the world. And he brings about encounters between people and Jesus. And the question is, is this the promised one? Is this the one God has sent? And I think in one way or another, everybody faces that question at some point in their lives. And sometimes they face it again and again. Who do you say that I am? And in this, uh, in this event that we're talking about, the, 
the, the triumphal entry, Jesus is actively provoking this question. It's not, it's still a little bit indirect, but it, it's getting very close to being an explicit claim in which he says, this is who I am. I am the coming king. He provokes it first by this uh, situation with the donkey. Now, you notice that that wasn't the disciples' idea. That's Jesus' idea. As they're coming up to the Mount of Olives, Jesus says to two of his disciples, go on ahead to the next village. When you get to that village, you will find a donkey tied up there. And actually, Matthew tells us that there were two. There was a donkey and the donkey's colt. But they're tied up there, and uh, I want you to get them and bring them back. And if anybody says to you, what are you doing, which is likely is going to happen, right? Tell them the Lord has need of them. And that's what they do, and that's the answer they give, and seems like it's okay. They bring back the donkey, and when they do... The people put Jesus on the donkey. Luke's the only one who actually says they put him there. And the imagery seems to be one of enthronement. Right? But Jesus initiates it. Now, what's the deal with the the donkey? The donkey has intimations of kingship, of royalty. Now, a horse would have that, too, and give a different flavor, right? The horse is more the the coming conqueror. The donkey is a more peaceful approach, but it still has the the suggestions of kingship about it. So there's this story in 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, King David is now old and decrepit, like me. Actually, he's worse from the story, but... And David has promised his, what, fourth son in the birth order? Solomon. He's promised Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, that Solomon will get the kingship. Now, normally in birth order, you take the the oldest, right? The oldest is Adonijah. Well, David is getting kind of slow to getting around to doing things that he says he's going to do, and he hasn't appointed Solomon. And Adonijah is looking at that and saying, uh, the old man is uh, beyond ability here, right? And so I'm going to take things into my own hands. And actually what he does is stages a coup. And he gets, uh, he gets his friends and gets some influential people and they get together for a big party and they announce that he's the king. Which means it's not going to be good for Bathsheba and Solomon once he gets power. Well, Nathan the prophet finds out about this and uh, goes to Bathsheba and says, you know, this is a life and death situation. We need a plan. And so they they get the plan. They go in to see David. Nathan goes first and says, uh, David, didn't you promise the kingdom to Solomon? Yeah. Well, what's Adonijah doing? 
And this is the first that David knows about it. And Bathsheba comes in and confirms the story. And, and finally then, David is ready to act. What does he do? He says, take the elite guard and take Solomon, put him on my mule and march him down to the spring Gihon and announce, uh, anoint him as Israel's next king. Of course, that's what they do and the whole city starts to cheer and, and the celebration with Anijah, Adonijah gets awareness of what's happening and everybody just kind of slinks away. But notice, part of the ceremony of instating Solomon is to take David's mule and ride him on that because that has significance that this is really the guy. So Jesus initiates this. You're going to find a donkey, bring him here, and he rides into town on the donkey. And then there's this other passage in Zechariah 9.9, which is interesting. It's a messianic passage. Uh, It it addresses the people of Jerusalem. Daughter Jerusalem, behold, your king comes to you gentle, gentle, Righteous and riding on a donkey and a colt, a donkey's foal. And the Jews would have understood that as, <clears throat> as a messianic pronouncement. That's the coming king. So here comes Jesus, and he chooses a donkey to ride into town, and it's pretty clear what he's doing. And, of course, it's, it's pretty clear for the, the disciples, too. They say, yes, finally. And in the words of Psalm 118, they cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Luke adds, see, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, because that's the way they had come to understand that psalm. <clears throat> psalm 118 is one of the, called, it's called the Egyptian Hallel. And, and it's six psalms right in a row in your Old Testament, Psalm 113 through 118. And these psalms were recited at the three great feast days in Israel, the yearly feast days, <clears throat> one of which was Passover. And Passover this week is, depending how you figure it, it's, it's Friday or it's a little bit tricky, but it looks like it's, it's pretty clear that Jesus, who is orchestrating this last week of his life, beginning with a triumphal entry, is setting things up to be the Passover lamb who dies on Passover. And so the disciples, in their enthusiasm... And their awareness of this celebratory psalm, which has the Hosanna in it, right? Oh, Lord, save. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing away. They say, yes, the time has finally come. We know that this is the guy. 
And of course, this provokes the question for everybody, is, is he the guy? And not only pr provokes the question, but it provokes the opposition. And what we find is <clears throat> that the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, are really put out by this. Such presumption. This carpenter from Nazareth who's been wandering around for a couple of years and doing things that have gotten people pretty excited. And here they are. They're singing about his being the Messiah. Preposterous stuff. Presumptuous stuff. And the Romans are right here, and they're breathing down our necks. All we need is some would-be Messiah stirring things up. So they say to him, do you hear what your disciples are saying? You need to shut them up. This is, this is incendiary language they're using. This is dangerous. Well, <clears throat> uh, what does he say? Say, oh, sorry about that. He says, don't you understand that if they go silent, the rocks will cry out. I've been thinking about that. What's, I mean, that, that's inflated speech, right? That's poetic speech. But what's behind that? In part, I think, it's something like this. Don't you men understand that in not listening to these words and not comprehending what is taking place here, that the inanimate creation around us has more spiritual discernment than you do? Something like that. And... <clears throat> You know, the old thing about sticking the stick in the beehive, right? I mean, that's really what he's doing here. And he's doing it consciously. It's not by accident. It's very conscious because, again, he is the one who is now orchestrating the last days of his life. I mean, think about that. He is orchestrating his own crucifixion. You wouldn't do that, would you? And that's, that's partly the reason the, the disciples cannot comprehend what takes place. Even right down through Good Friday and Black Saturday, In fact, if you read the resurrection accounts from Easter Sunday, they still don't get it. It is just too difficult to get their minds around that the king would come and he would do this. But that is what he's doing. Now, let's spend a couple minutes with this last section because verses 41 to 44 are only in Luke. Matthew, Mark, John, 
Don't tell us this part. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So I've been thinking about this. There's an awful lot going on. I mean, the Lord looks ahead here 40 years down the road. And he says, because you don't discern what's happening right now, there is judgment going to fall on this city. And that's what happens A.D. 67 to 70. Uh, the Jews, after, what, 40 years almost of increasing rebelliousness against Roman oppression, they decide to revolt, and they do, and uh, the Romans lay siege to the city for three years, and in the end, it is just what Jesus said. It's gruesome destruction. But he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, So I, th I think it raises for us a question something like this. Do you know what's wrong? There's a lot that's wrong, right? <laughs> you look at a world where there's all kinds of stuff that is evil and frightening. <clears throat> Do you know what's wrong? I think Jesus says to the Jewish leadership and, in a sense, to everyone in his day, you don't understand what really the problem is here. If you had understand, understood what makes for peace, but you don't. Remember peace, that Old Testament word that we've talked about from time to time? Absence of conflict, that, that's part of peace, but it, it's broader than that. It's health, it's uh, safety. I like that translation, comprehensive well-being. What makes for comprehensive well-being? If you had known what makes for peace, Jesus said. But because you don't, there's only destruction ahead. The Jews think they know what's wrong. That is, the center of the problem has to do with Rome, with this powerful but oppressive empire that uh, has been ruling over them now for, what, 50 years or so by the time Jesus dies? 
and it's going to be considerably longer? That's the big problem. If we can, if we can somehow ease that oppression, if we could get, if we could actually get rid of the oppression altogether. And that's the zealot group, which is, I mean, one of Jesus' disciples is a zealot. And that movement is going to grow so that in the next 40 years, they will dominate in Jerusalem and hence the revolution. So they have an answer to the problem. What's wrong? What's your answer to the problem? Because you're looking for peace too. I mean, we're all looking for that. Because we all know that we live in a world where there's a lot of things that are wrong and we yearn for peace, for comprehensive well-being. What's the problem? What's going to give you peace? More friends? Different friends? A new career. A new iPhone. A new car. A new house. A better marriage. There's all kinds of answers that people give, right? They're searching. Because we all want peace. Jesus understands that. So what is wrong? Well, part of getting at that, I think, is to ask this question. Is whatever we think is wrong, do we think that's largely internal or do we think it's external? Is it out there or is it in here? People in Jesus' day, as as a lot of people still today, I think, say it's, it's external. Even if, I, even if I need to go to a counselor and talk about my problems, I tend to think of my problems mainly as problems that are outside of me. It's problems that other people cause. That's... That's the way I operate, don't you? And that's the way the Jewish people operated. And what Jesus is pressing for is that the understanding that the people of his day had as to what was wrong and how they went about getting peace, he said, you're fundamentally misunderstanding what the issues are. And that's where the next story that we just read the opening to, that's where the connection between his entry and these words he gives about if you had known what would make for peace and that next event, the first thing he does after entering the city is go to the temple. And he makes a whip and he drives out the people who are exchanging money for sacrifices there quite a commercial enterprise, 
overturns their tables. What's he saying by that? Again, we have to ask, what are these symbolic actions telling us? Isn't Jesus saying, if you had known what would make for peace, and it's not getting rid of the Romans, that's an external issue. I'm here to talk to you about something much more fundamental. I want to talk about something that's internal, internal to us as a people, and and centrally, fundamentally, it's our relationship to God. And the temple, which is to symbolize that Israel are the people who worship the living and true God, their worship has been corrupted, and it's corrupt right from the top. It's an internal problem. Now here again, this this action could have cued them. Maybe it did cue a few people as to what he was doing. But but you may remember one of the closing prophecies of the Old Testament. Prophet Malachi, who says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord is going to come. The Lord they seek, but they are not looking for what the Lord will bring. And the prophet says, behold, he will come. And he will come as a refiner's fire to purify the sons of Levi, to purify those who should be leading God, leading worship to God, but they're corrupt. So he throws them out with the words, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Well, so this is the question, huh? Where do you, where are you seeking your peace? The invitation of this passage, the invitation he gives to the people of his day and that he continues to give right through the ages, through 20 centuries, is this. I am the one who brings peace. And that's going to be confirmed in the next week as he pursues peace for us, for sinners, by laying down his life in a gruesome death. Not as a tragic end to the life of a good man, although that's one way you could look at it, but much more as the purposeful action of a sovereign God who out of love and grace, mercy, says, I will be the source 
of the peace that eludes the human race. Where do you seek peace? Or from whom do you seek peace? This Palm Sunday invites us to, uh, to understand in a way that the disciples at that time did not understand. That Jesus, the gentle king, entering not on a war horse but on a donkey, is the one who, in fact, can bring us to comprehensive well-being now and forever. That's good news. That's, That's gospel. And as he invited people in his day to believe that, to trust him, to follow him, so he does now. He invites us to turn to him as that gentle king to acknowledge his authority and to experience forgiveness and to experience the transformation that his spirit works in our lives. That's the good news of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. And I trust that as we go through this week and you get different reminders of... uh, who he is and what he's done. It'd be a great thing for you to read that last week. You know, each of the Gospels spends about 25% of its entire scope just on this last week. So start with Palm Sunday and read right through the resurrection, and next week we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together. Let's pray, and then we're going to have communion. Lord, Thank you for that amazing generosity, that focus, that purpose with which you chose to lay down your life for us. As you said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself that I might take it again. And God, you have, you have done this for us in sending your Son. We are so grateful, and as we share together in the communion, may we, uh, may we be encouraged, Lord. May our hearts flow out to you in love and thankfulness for what you have done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.